everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Polybites podcast, bringing you bite-sized politics every week. This is our first podcast for February as we leave the quiet holiday month of January behind, and from next week, Parliament in Victoria kicks off again. The theme this week in media and politics has been elective surgery, with the state insisting that it still can't resume in full, and the calls from practicing medical professionals publicly disagreeing with this becoming louder and louder as the week has gone on. This has obviously worked quite well because as of this afternoon, the state has backflipped on their Code Brown announcement and announced not only that, but more funding for the hospital system, which in February 2022 is obviously just in time to deal with things and certainly not considered late off the mark at all. It's now official that elective surgery will resume from 50% capacity next week, with the government then deciding to use random and arbitrary numbers to justify when they will increase this capacity. The number they've picked is that once average hospitalizations drop below 600, not 550, not 700, 600. This number was obviously picked rather than some ridiculous metric like, say, each facility being able to decide for themselves based on their own staffing and capabilities what surgery they can actually do. One of the other big events of the week was that on the Monday, we had the first Pandemic Declaration Accountability and Oversight Committee, where we heard from Brett Sutton that it wasn't even him deciding to suspend elective surgery. In this hearing, he seemed determined to introduce his colleague, Professor Wallace, to the underside of a bus when he said it was not his decision to suspend elective surgery, a comment that was prompted after a question from Crozier about the IVF suspension and whose idea it was. This is obviously the spectacular backflip from last week. Along with this, Sutton also blamed a random deputy within the public service for the reason the testing capacity previously fell apart and said that he was responsible for it. Seems like maybe Sutton has had enough of being blamed. So while he may be king of the limelight for hot air and oppressors, apparently he doesn't really make any decisions. There were some big I don't hold a hose vibes coming out of this particular committee and questions remain why the acting chief health officer, Professor Cowie, was not present. As for the last pandemic declaration and all of the orders, the advice provided was actually from him, not from Sutton. So in updates, apparently chief health officers do nothing but give advice now and then a bunch of other people, some elected and some not, make decisions on what actually happens next. One of these recently happened to be increasing the size of the crowd at the tennis final. Minister for Sports, Pakula, tweeted on the weekend how happy he was the chief health officer had given advice it was safe to increase the crowd size at the Australian Open final match. Awkwardly for them, Sutton got up in this committee hearing and said he didn't give that advice and that the decision to increase the crowd size was a social consideration made by the Minister for Health, which is within his pandemic power capacity, but who we all, of course, know has zero relevant qualifications in health, science, or anything else. This is, of course, on top of our equally unqualified Premier continuing to publicly push Atagi to change the definition of fully vaccinated to be three shots rather than two, so he can no doubt source justification for another widespread mandate on the public, as he has so hinted. Interestingly, this really got brought up in the presser on Wednesday, with journos asking, basically, why it was still in place with the vaccine mandates and the passes, and when it would end. 
His answer will go up in a smash cut video this weekend. But basically, Dan said, and I quote, he's told that people prefer to know they are sitting next to someone who has done the right thing. Moments later, he trots out his favorite line that is all about following the health advice and not playing politics. Of course, he just admitted the key reason he's keeping these mandates and the vaccine passports is quite literally that he thinks they're popular with his voting base and it's nothing to do with health, science or anything else. But hey, when has that stopped them? Given the pandemic powers shifted all decision-making to politicians, who are indeed theoretically accountable, we can't necessarily be all that surprised about their move to be openly confident that it's politics now guiding their decisions, not science. They can get some advice and then do whatever they want with it, apparently. Speaking of advice, in the last set of advice documents, which were briefly mentioned before, these were provided this round by Cowie, not Sutton. And in these were not only a number of administrative errors, but Professor Cowie actually advised against a blanket booster mandate for the general population. This repeatedly came up in this committee meeting as to why you have one set of advice and the Premier saying something else. This is obviously an example of even worse than no advice existing to go government, there was in fact imposing advice to what they're getting up and threatening the public with imposing. How this plays out for them long term is yet to be seen, but part of this shift has also included them being more honest about the fact that they know they only got to the current vaccination rates by coercive measures. Rather than be concerned by that, they're now openly proud about it. If you think about it, it's a little bit disturbing. In a wild turn of locating a skeletal group that could possibly be called a spine, the Victorian Liberals have come out and said that they now do not support support a general booster mandate for the public. The general communication on this stance on some of these controversial policy points has been about as clear so far as Dan's memory in a formal inquiry, with half of Matthew Guy's comment sections on social media just turning into questions about their stance on the mandates. Let's be honest here, it's a fair question. If you're the opposition, then people have a right to understand exactly what kind of state you want to lead and what that would look like under you. Some would even call it the bare minimum. Anyway, they've come out and said it now that they do not support a general booster mandate for the public in Victoria, but have clearly chosen not to mention the fact they do support it for some industries and are continually choosing to make no comment about if the current widespread mandates should lift, which, given New South Wales' stance, is becoming pretty annoying. Just copy Dom, guys. If his polling hasn't dropped from his decision, your options are either play to what is clearly the policy your base wants, if he remains popular, or behave like Labor light. It will be interesting to see how hard they push this stance as Parliament returns this week, and they will no doubt cop comments from the government on it. How much this comes up in question time, and Dan no doubt trying to call them anti-vaxxers, will be interesting. Not because that won't happen, it absolutely will, but it will be interesting to see how they deal with it. Speaking of Parliament next week, the quiet time of January is now officially behind us, and as of next week, it will be kicking off with a bang, with it being confirmed that Adam Somurek will be presenting his Drain the Swamp motion next week in Parliament, and debate and final vote will happen on the Sex Work Decriminalisation Bill. A summary of this bill will follow, but in short, the reason there was no campaign on this is they have the crossbench votes to pass it, so there wasn't too much point in having a wider campaign. Similarly, some of the concerns that got brought up by the public initially, as it turns out, weren't quite accurate. It's also worth mentioning, as much as it may be presented otherwise, the idea that it is easy or common to be able to edit a bill midway between the parliamentary houses is pretty false. It's remarkably rare and difficult, and we've seen it only a handful of times over the past few years on highly public and controversial bills like the omnibus, the pandemic powers, etc. 
Now, in the instance we had an even more split upper house, perhaps this wouldn't be the case, but currently that's the situation and it's worth being upfront and honest with people about the realistic situation that they're facing if there is a bill that is of concern that has already passed the lower house, like what this one has. That isn't to say this sex decriminalization bill isn't without some issues. In the lower house, the Libs put forward some reasoned amendments, which are essentially a list of reasons and demands explaining exactly why they won't support the bill as it stands, which included the following points. They wanted a redacted and de-identified copy of Patton's government commissioned review to enable them to scrutinise the recommendations that have led to the proposed legislation. So basically, they're happy for it to be kept anonymous, but they want to see what was actually given as advice and requested from the review that led to this bill. The second part is in the bill, there is a clause about exclusion zones, which obviously means where the work can't occur. And they want the term that's in there, which is near, defined to remove any ambiguity and cause for community dissatisfaction when authorities are policing the law. So basically, they just want some stuff clarified. The next point is they want the minister to confirm what support programs and mechanisms will actually be put in place to support workers from a health and safety perspective. This is related to the fact that there's a number of concepts presented in this bill that will happen and this will be created with no actual detail as to how this will happen or when or any of the other sort of minutia. And finally, they have requested consultation on the proposal to remove the protection for landlords that currently allows them to refuse accommodation to sex workers if that worker wishes to conduct sex work within that accommodation. What they're referring to here is a clause in the bill that basically means a landlord cannot refuse to rent a property to a sex worker if that person plans to conduct sex work on the premises. This obviously removes the landlord's rights to an extent to control what happens on their property. There was a lot of concern online about a clause repealing certain sections of the 1994 Victorian Sex Work Act around the requirements for safe sex, STDs, etc. But it's worth noting for people that while it repeals certain sections, one of the issues and the reason for this bill to exist was that the 1994 Act became borderline redundant because it didn't capture a huge portion of the industry not working legally anyway. All those who were working illegally would, as a result, likely not have been too worried about breaking a subset of one law when they were already breaking it in general with what they were doing. Given the severity of the concerns around this, I have gotten some advice from people more informed on this bill than me, and I'm told that having it legalised means that they are then considered a workplace like others, and things such as workplace and occupational work health and safety legislation then immediately applies. This is also one of the reasons that the opposition have not brought this up in their amendments. I think it's really important to realise that if this was a real problem in terms of workplace health and safety, it absolutely would have been brought up by someone. This is one of the reasons why watching the initial debates and seeing the amendments that get put forward can be really useful because obviously these are all generated from specific legal advice. The communication on this topic by the government has, as par for course, been horrendous and they just let the online rumours fly. So the biggest news next week is now shaping up to be Adam dropping his Drain the Swamp motion. We'll get to see this motion on Tuesday for the first time, and it will likely get discussed more on the Wednesday. When I say I'm excited for Adam Somurek to get a chunk of time to talk under parliamentary privilege where he can't be held legally liable for what he says, let me tell you, I'm excited. See you next week.